Hi, my name is Jonathan Kiersby. Welcome to Sax Reel, the podcast that gives you the inside scoop on your favorite saxophone-loving musicians. Each episode, I will have a new guest in to share their fun stories about their past, talk about their experiences as musicians and educators, and to share any exciting projects that they're working on. Welcome back to another episode of Sax Reel. This week, we have a very special guest. He has been teaching saxophone for many, many years. His students are highly successful in traveling around the world and performing. He is definitely the father of contemporary saxophone music. I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Sampin. Thank you, Jonathan. It's uh, a delight for me to be on your podcast, and I think this is this is a terrific uh, thing you're doing, uh, interviewing important saxophonists from all over the world. So thank you for putting this all together. Several months ago, I gave lectures at Purdue University and at Georgia State University on the topic, A Life in the Arts, Living the Dream. This was a program uh, that may continue through this discussion as we consider several of my own adventures, traveling, teaching, and networking with great musicians all over the world. Before we get into that, could you give us a little bit of background on where you studied and a little bit of information on your career? Sure. I studied the concert saxophone first with Donald Sinta at Interlochen when I was in high school, and then a little bit later with Larry Teal for a short time. But mostly my work was with Fred Hemke at Northwestern University, where I received my bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degree. I've commissioned over 100 works and have soloed with ensembles from all over the world. Uh, I've been a longtime clinician for the Con Selmer Company and the Legere Reed Company, and have presented master classes at many universities throughout Europe, Asia, North America, and South America. In addition to contemporary literature, I also performed traditional music with Marilyn Schrute, who, of course, is my wife. Uh, Marilyn is a famous composer, teacher, singer, pianist, administrator. We were married in 1973 in a service which featured music performed by our teachers, uh, Carl Paukert and Fred Hemke, and uh, we commissioned a piece by Marilyn's teacher at, at Northwestern composition teacher, Alan Stout. During our courtship, Marilyn was introduced to the classical saxophone, an instrument for which she had no previous knowledge or interest. <laughs> As we all know, saxophone has a somewhat checkered reputation and is sometimes known as an instrument of the devil. But Marilyn soon overcame her doubts about this devilish instrument. For me, marrying a composer pianist became a huge advantage. We've co collaborated on many projects throughout the years, and Marilyn now has created over 30 compositions for our instrument. Wow, that's an impressive history. And also, it seems extremely convenient and wonderful having such a good friend and uh, composer and pianist at your side. It's worked out pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I'm delighted. So in 1977, we began teaching at Bowling Green State University, where we are both distinguished artist professors. Working together, but mainly in Maryland's uh, efforts, we saw the creation of an annual New Music and Arts Festival, which has been going 41, 42 years. Um, the formation of the Mid-American Center for Contemporary Music, 
and the realization of a new doctorate of music degree in contemporary music. That's one of the only such uh, programs in the country. As a result, we were able to invite many famous composers to campus for lectures, concerts, and presentations. For me, this was another dream, the opportunity to meet and make friends with composers such as Milton Babbitt, Karel Husa, John Adams, and John Cage. I'm just curious, before you and Dr. Schrute ended up at Bowling Green, was it a, known for contemporary music at all, or was it really you guys that pioneered that for them? Well, there was, there was an electronic studio here and a pretty good composer by the name of, of uh, Burton Bierman. Mm. And Burton uh, became a good friend. Uh, we worked together in starting that festival. It was his idea, actually. Mm. Uh, we didn't think it would work, but it, it, it was very successful. And uh, eventually, Marilyn took over running that festival and ran that for, I don't know, 20-some 20, 20 years. So. But no, you're right. Before uh, before we came to Bowling Green, it, I, new music was uh, not so interesting, mm. and we we had to twist a lot of arms to get uh, pianists. No, no player would play new music. You know, there was always uh, a couple players that were interested, but a lot of uh, a lot of individuals had no no desire to uh, wade into the contemporary music scene. So it's changed a lot over the years. I'm sure that has to be cool to have set that legacy out because, you know, Bowling Green now, of course, is very known for its contemporary music. And I feel like that's just so cool to be a part of that beginning. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned that you also I mean, that you studied with Fred Hemke. Um, What were some of the experiences that you had with him that really stuck out? Fred had an intuitive uh, sense of judging a student's needs and untapped abilities. He always seemed to know encouragement was necessary or counseling or inspiration or criticism. And he, he gave out a lot of criticism. Um, but uh, all that, I think, produced very high results. He was pleasantly unpredictable. Uh, this coupled with his towering size. He was a big man, six yeah, foot, very tall. maybe six foot. And uh, just really uncanny as a, as a saxophonist, just very natural as a player. Uh, he kept us in awe and suspense, um, but I don't think fear was a part of his teaching technique. Mm. Fred offered constant encouragement, and he sought to encourage each student in the process of making intelligent musical and pedagogical decisions. When I first arrived at Northwestern in 1967, I began hearing stories about this, this uh, legendary man, this big <laughs> larger-than-life saxophonist. He and a student quartet had just returned from a, a world tour, mostly in Asia. Uh, they were being sponsored by the State Department, mm -hmm. and they were gone for uh, an entire, I think, three or four months they were on tour, and it was a big deal. So they had just arrived back, and I remember walking by one of the practice rooms, and the quartet was rehearsing with, with Fred, uh, and I'd never heard anything so beautiful in all my life as a saxophone quartet, a good saxophone quartet. And Fred was, uh, he was excited in this rehearsal and uh, I, I can still hear him yelling things like, Judas Priest, get the lead out and things like, you know, he didn't, he didn't curse, but he got, got pretty close. Uh, he got really excited. 
As for, uh, as for the studio uh, and studio lessons, it was a, a min minor miracle if our lesson started or ended on time. His phone would ring three or four times each lesson. Uh, he was the director of the wind and percussion um, division at Northwestern, and so he had a lot of administrative duties. And every time that phone would ring, it'd be five or ten minutes on the phone. I had limited personal time, but 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 the time we had together was was very special. Perhaps one of my favorite recollections was uh, in 1970. The International Geneva Concours had just announced that saxophone would be one of their instruments um, for that particular competition. That concours only runs uh, for saxophone maybe every 13 or 14 years. Oh, wow. So most of us get one chance if we wanted to go to Geneva. And I was a junior, junior in college, and um, Fred encourages us to go. Marcel Mill and Sigurd Rascher were the judges. The other two saxophonists uh, were James Hill, who became a professor at Ohio State University for many years, and Robert Black, who uh, uh, ran a music store in, in Chicago for, for quite a number of years. So I was fortunate to make it to the semifinal round, a recital round, and Fred had promised if any of us made it that far, he would be there. So oh, wow. he bought a plane ticket and um, flew over and was there to attend my recital. And his presence was uh, so special for me, really. Uh, I've always had a, a great memory of, of that of that time that he was there supporting me for that. Following the uh, competition, Fred rented a tiny little uh, Peugeot uh, automobile and drove five of us, there were five people in this little car with lots of suitcases and many saxophones on a special sightseeing trip around Switzerland. Fred wanted to see a art exhibit in Bern, in uh, Bern, Switzerland, where there was supposed to be a Paul Clay exhibit. We never found the exhibit. But while we were ascending the mountain, we were on a two-lane highway going up the mountain, the Swiss Alps, had no guardrail and uh, minimum visibility, and we could, about one foot from the road, we could look straight down for uh, many, many <laughs> hundreds of, of feet. Uh, we, we had a, a blizzard, a winter blizzard, and our car could not handle going uphill. It, it was sliding backwards. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so Fred said, okay, all of you guys get out of the car and push. And, uh, he, <laughs> and we pushed that car up the hill. <laughs> the top. So, you know, he was that kind of guy who, who could just give us the, uh, uh, the gift of understanding that anything was possible even pushing a car over the Swiss Alps. Uh, that is amazing. <laughs> pretty special moment. I know that after, of course, your education, you worked a lot with Dr. Hemke, and it had to have been special because it became more of a friendship over time. And I wonder what it was like working with him. Well, you know, for a lot of years, he was always Dr. Hemke. Of course. Uh, he was not Fred. I didn't call him Fred. It's, it's hard to call your teacher by their first name. Uh, and uh, it took me a long time to, to get to that point where I was comfortable. And I think for him, too, 
Uh, we always remain friends. Uh, we exchange students. I would see him at, at conferences. And then uh, when he started the Fred Hemke Snow Pond saxophone uh, workshop in, in Maine, Dale Levinsky and, and Fred invited uh, me to be part of that. So we, we shared a cabin in Maine. It was, it was uh, near a little town in Maine called Sydney, right on a lake. And um, we had, a, it was kind of a duplex. We had a nice porch in the back. And every day after we'd been teaching all day, we'd go sit on the porch together. And uh, that was our time to drink wine <laughs> and uh, unwind, talk about life and saxophone. And he loved to talk about philosophy and religion and uh, he loved old cars. Uh, he he uh, uh, had done some architectural work at Northwestern. I mean, he had many, many talents. And so it was a great time. We had three or four wonderful years of teaching in the summer. You are definitely known as someone who took Hemke's advice of anything is possible and lived that out. I feel like you have some experiences that no one else has. I don't even know how it's possible. I heard that you were able to go to the USSR in the 1980s. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. You know, I look back on some of these trips and um, they were, I think I said before, trips of a lifetime. And mm -hmm. I've had many trips of a lifetime. If I never go anyplace else again, uh, I am I, so fortunate to have enjoyed seeing the world uh, as, a, as a musician and as a saxophonist. And I think uh, we're lucky to be in this profession. You also, Jonathan. For sure. We can travel and uh, meet friends and make networks and um, see the world. Uh, it's, it's just great. So in the uh, 1980s, we did go to the Soviet Union. It was it was before uh, the, the USSR no longer existed. In the in the mid 1980s, I had developed several close friends from Russia only through correspondence, mm -hmm. and I wanted to go and, and visit that country. But as an American wishing to uh, go to the Eastern Bloc in the 1980s, it wasn't easy. We weren't mm -hmm. friends with Russia. But it was, uh, it, was, it was kind of a scary time. In order to go, you needed to find a special, uh, some kind of organization that helped sponsor you. Ours was called the Citizens Exchange Council. And you needed a, a, usually a, a guide who could speak the language. If, if you couldn't speak Russian, of course, we couldn't. So around 1987, I met a man named Harlow Robinson just through a mail correspondence. He's a prominent professor of Slavic languages at the University of New York, Albany, and author of an important biography on Prokofiev and on uh, the impresario Sal Hurok. Mm. Harlow would often travel to the USSR and would bring back music from Russian composers, which he would then send to me in a package without any letter or any introduction or anything. So I didn't know who was sending me music, except that the return address was Harlow Robinson. So <laughs> I was very curious about this person and, and uh, I, made, I made a contact with him and eventually we became friends. And I asked him to help organize a trip for us, uh, which happened, like I said, in 1989. Uh, this was for Marilyn and myself. Jim Forger, who's now the uh, director of the School of Music at Michigan State. Jim's wife, Deborah Moriarty, a wonderful pianist. 
John Anthony Lennon, and two other composers and a, a musicologist. So we had a, a group of seven or eight people that, that went on, the, on that trip. When we arrived in the Soviet Union, our passports were taken. Oh, they confiscated our passports. We didn't see them until we left the country a couple of weeks later. So that was a little scary. Um, we were hoping we could get home <laughs> sometime. <Yeah. laughs> Uh, and our guides gave us a lot of instructions, uh, including a command that we were not to exchange dollars for rubles on the black market. Mm. This was something we should and could not do. If we did, we could be arrested and sent to jail, and they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't get us out. Mm. So one of my composer friends, not my wife, but one of the other people with us, had other plans. And on the first night in St. Petersburg, he, we huddled in the back seat of the bus and he, he pulls me over and he says, John, I just want to show you all the rubles I just got trading dollars <laughs> oh, in the no. black. Unbelievable. I couldn't, I just, uh, I was amazed uh, that he, he was that brave. I, w I could not do it. Uh, he also bought five or six uh, Soviet belt buckles, which he was trying to sell to us. <laughs> Um, we visited three main places. We first went to St. Petersburg, that was then called Leningrad, uh, then Moscow, and then Tbilisi, which is a, a town in Soviet Georgia. In St. Petersburg, we went to the, uh, some of our sites were the Summer Palace, the Hermitage Museum. We went to the Tick Evan, I don't know how to pronounce that cemetery, where are the tombs of Tchaikovsky, and Glazunov. That was wow. exciting. And we presented some music of our own at the Leningrad House of Composers. In Moscow, our tourist highlights included Lenin's tomb, St. Basil's church, and that's that's a location where the uh, this big square is right in front of the uh, the, the St. Basil's, which we always see on, on the news. That's a yeah. famous, famous uh, location. And we went to the, a performance of the uh, Moscow Circus, which uh, had a performing saxophonist, uh, unbelievably, who played while balanced first on the on top of uh, another clown's shoulders, <laughs> and then he climbed up, balanced himself on a pole, and continued to play saxophone. Oh wow! <laughs> I was impressed. Uh, <laughs> it's great. Do you remember what he played? No idea. Oh, no, bummer. <laughs> Just the fact that he could do it, period. That's uh, true. That is very true. <laughs> at the Moscow Conservatory, we gathered with various Russian composers in their uh, elegant green room, where there were many long, long, long speeches. Everybody <laughs> had to know. Give, including an impassioned talk by Edison Denisov, mm. who questioned his colleagues on the fact that they did, didn't want to help fund or uh, promote the development of an electronic music studio, the mm. Moscow Conservatory. Now, the electronic studios were just starting to become important in schools all over the world, but uh, at Moscow, they didn't, didn't have any interest at that point. It was mm. 1980. I'm sure things are totally different now, but, but uh, at that moment, they were, not, they were not ahead of their time. Denisov was not not pleased. But he was an exciting guy, inspiring, uh, energetic. Uh, we, we really were delighted in, in, the, in having a chance to meet him. 
our performance was in the Moscow Conservatory of Music, and then we did another one in the Moscow House of Composers, and we featured music of Denisov, John Anthony Lennon, Marilyn Shrewd, Mark Sullivan, and Alan Johnson. So we had a really nice program there. We also met uh, this eccentric but talented saxophonist, Margarita Shapishnikova, who uh, was a, a reasonably famous and maybe still is teacher mm. in Russia uh, and, and a pretty good player, amazingly good player. And I would see her after 1989 at various saxophone congresses as well. But of this, uh, she gave a recital. And for this, this experience, she entered the hall from the back and processed forward. She was wearing a, a long flowing red gown and she had a rose sticking out of the bell of her saxophone and she was playing as she forward. During her program, during later in the concert program, she brought student performers up on stage, some of her students, and uh, had them continue playing something. I don't know what they were playing. And she left the stage and came out into the audience and invited members of the audience to dance with her. <laughs> First, Jim Forger was dancing with her, and then it was my turn. Uh, well, not wanted to dance, but uh, it was it was an experience that uh, that was pretty unusual, and and I've never seen. It. <laughs> sure, yeah. We left Moscow after that concert, but it was it was that was a special special memory. You know, the Russians, uh, the Russian musicians had no money. Mm. Uh, they got paid almost nothing. A box of reeds could cost them half of their monthly salary. Oh this wow! Eighty nine. Uh, those people that did have money, there was nothing to buy. There was no real furniture. You, you couldn't buy shoes. They had malls, but there was nothing in the stores. Uh, so it was really a sad, sad time. And that all changed uh, 20 years later. It was, it was a totally different country. But at that time, it was, it was a pretty, pretty sad situation. Have you been able to go uh, back since that visit? Maryland was back um, maybe 15 years ago, 20 years mm -hmm. ago. And um, she, she said it's, it was night and day. Yeah, just totally, sure. totally, totally different. So our last, um, our last experience was to fly down to this um, city of Tbilisi in Soviet Georgia. Mm -hmm. And that was a, another great adventure. To begin with, our boarding tickets, we were on uh, Soviet airlines, and the boarding tickets was a torn piece of paper, blank paper. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> And everybody scrambled for the for the door. You know, you, they didn't call by rows. Uh, we just got on as fast as we could. The seats, some of them were broken. Uh, Jim Forger's seat uh, was totally reclining when he didn't <laughs> want it to. He was in somebody else's lap. And people were bringing on the plane these funeral wreaths. Mm. Uh, and, and putting them in the center of aisle. You know, whenever we fly now on, on modern planes, you don't have anything in the aisle. You're sitting down, you have your belt, but, but there's no seat belts. Uh, <laughs> but these wreaths in the center of the, the aisle. And we found out later is because of the um, the city of Tbilisi had had, had um, some demonstrations near the time that we were flying there. And the police had uh, used some... Um, 
poison gas and killed a bunch of, of, of people in the demonstration. Oh, wow. So, so they closed down the city totally, and and a lot of people now were able to come back. This was the first flight that they had allowed to come back into the uh, into the country. Oh, wow. And uh, so there were people bringing uh, funeral wreaths for their their lost uh, relatives, perhaps. I don't Did know. you know that that had happened before you had made that trip? Well, we were afraid that we wouldn't be able to make the make the trip at all. So yeah. Yeah, we knew it happened, uh, and we were just lucky, I guess, that we the timing was right that we could yeah. we could uh, could fly in there. But anyway, at the uh, Tbilisi airport, we were greeted by our host named Zaza, <laughs> and sister whose name was Lali. So Zaza and Lali. I um, have a suspicion that they, they may have made those up because their names were too hard to actually pronounce. <laughs> I know they were their real names. That uh, was really uh, their names? That's amazing. <laughs> Zaza's uh, in, in Tbilisi. Um, and they, they were wonderful people. In fact, uh, everybody in Russia was wonderful. Zaza's English was limited to almost zero. And my Russian was well, didn't exist. And he he insisted on asking me questions directly without a, my translator around. And uh, you know, so in those situations, what I would usually do is smile and and nod my head yes and whatever they said. I you know like this, I was just nodding yes. So Zaza apparently was asking me if I had played in the band with Billy Joel. And, <laughs> and you no. just nodded yes. <laughs> So they got really excited, you know, because <laughs> here we were, these these uh, Billy Joel musicians, which of course <laughs> we weren't. Uh, so they gave us roses and flowers and uh, oh, treated wow. us really like royal. And it took days to get this misunderstanding <laughs> taken care of. It, it was a mess. There was one other really big misunderstanding from our our visit to please mm. to Blisi, uh, and that was the. Uh, programming of our concert. In our correspondence with the host there, we had explained that our, our music was avant-garde saxophone music. Mm -hmm. And apparently the term had different meaning to, uh, uh -oh. to the people. Uh, I, I suppose they thought because Jim Forger and I were saxophonists that we, we were either jazz or rock musicians and uh, or musicians playing with Billy Joel. And uh, so they booked our concert in the Barbarossa Bar. That's the name <laughs> of the place. And we arrived there to find that we had uh, a choice of keyboards, uh, either a St. Petersburg ancient piano that was not tuned and was at least a half a step flat, maybe okay. more, or a Fender Rhodes electronic piano. There, uh, there was no music. There were no music stands. We kept asking for music stands, and he said, "Oh yeah, we'll we'll get those," but they never came. And Zaza had organized a Russian rhythm section to accompany us. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> of course, Forger and I, we don't improvise with jazz sections. That's not not what we do. And uh, there was no way that we were going to stand up and and pretend to to make sounds. <laughs> uh, our program that we had organized for this concert was Rio Noda, Music Maryland True, John Anthony Lennon, and Addison Denisoff. Mm, definitely not and, jazz. Um, yeah. uh, it was a bizarre evening. Uh, we we <laughs> stacked our, our uh, cases on top of each other to make music stands for ourselves. Forger played the fastest Rio Noda improvisation one that I've ever heard. <laughs> 
I don't know how many minutes, but not many. Uh, Marilyn refused to play her music at all. We oh, didn't wow. do any shrewd. And nobody listened to the Denisov because they were uh, drinking beer. But, you know, even with all of that, we had a wonderful time there. It was a magical place. The uh, people were just, just so, so beautiful. And they took us around to share some of their history with us. We even visited this one ancient church. It was built in the third or fourth century. Oh, wow. So it's really, really old, located near Mount Ararat, mm. uh, which is the mountain where the fabled um, Noah's Ark is supposed to uh, have landed so uh a lot of history there and uh just some memories which which i'll never forget that's also awesome. a lot of fun and with that we will conclude part one of the dr sampin interview be sure to tune in next week for some more amazing stories don't forget to follow the podcast to make sure that you are up to date on all of the new episodes we have some more fantastic guests coming in i am very excited to share their stories as well thanks for listening Thank you.